Please stand as you're able for the reading from God's Word. Our scripture lesson today comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Job, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. On the day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Then Satan answered the Lord, Skin for skin, all that people have they will give to save their lives. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, he is in your power. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job took a potsherd with which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God? and not receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard all of these troubles had come upon him, each of them set out from his home, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They met together to console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thank you, Meryl, for reading our text today. Uh, It is good to be with you in worship. I have thought all day long how ironic it is. We plan these series often a year in advance, and certainly this text was chosen 10 or 12 months ago. If I were choosing this week a text to preach on, this would be the text based on what has been happening in our city the last several days. I have no idea how that happens uh, except somehow by the providential work of God that he would be so good as to have a a text like this for us to think about together for a few minutes this morning. We're continuing uh, the series, as we call it, Why Me? And it's very intentional, Why Me? Because our questions, our existential questions, as we said last week, usually are intensely personal. They come out of our own struggle. And so it was with Job. Last weekend, we explored the initial question that was raised in chapter 1, which was this, why are good people good? Why are righteous people righteous? 
The question, of course, was raised by the Satan. There's always an article in front of Satan because in this particular context, Satan is not a name, it's a role, it's a function. And the Satan in Job literally means the accuser or the prosecuting attorney whose responsibility on the heavenly council is to roam the earth in search of those who claim to be faithful but in fact are unfaithful. And in this case, the Satan contends with God that Job is only faithful for the perks, that the only reason this man of God follows God, the only reason he is righteous is for the benefits and blessings. But, says the Satan to God, if you were to remove the fence, if you were to remove the hedgerow of protection that surrounds him, he would certainly curse your name. He would curse God. And so God accepts the challenge, and Job remains faithful. As we said last week, it appears as though Job serves God for no apparent reason, not for camels, not for sheep, not for livestock, not for wealth, money, or reputation. But this is a man who simply serves God because God is worthy of our praise. And there's a couple of things I want to say before we dig into chapter 2 that I think is true of the book in general, the book of Job. Number one is this, there is a limit to the power of evil. I sometimes hear people speak of Satan as though Satan is co-equal with God. That isn't true. Evil is not greater than good. Good will ultimately, in the end, says Revelation, triumph over evil, even when evil gains a temporary foothold. I always think about 1 John 4, verse 4, that says, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. That's true. The second thing I want to mention that is implicit in this book as a whole is that God is incapable of evil. God is wholly, totally, and completely good. However, <laughs> we live in a fallen world. Ever since Genesis 3, ever since the fall of Adam, though we are made in the image of God, we can choose to thumb our nose at God. To be made in the image of God means that you have a will of your own. If you have a two-year-old, I don't have to articulate that. Even the angels have free will. And the truth of the matter is, sin infects all of creation. This is the why of natural tragedy, that sin, in fact, in fact, affects not only human nature, but all of nature. This is why Paul writes in Romans 8, all creation groans to be liberated from the bondage of sin and death. But the amazing thing to me is, Though God does not cause suffering and evil, God can certainly use suffering and evil for God's good. That's why there's a cross on the altar. God can use even the evil in the world in redemptive ways to bring about good. And we have seen countless acts of mercy and love this week in our own city through responders, through you. This morning, I want to turn to the second question in Job. Why 
do the righteous suffer? Or we might say it like this, why do bad things happen to good people? And I think implicit in this question, there is a larger question. How are we as God's children to respond to human pain and suffering? What you note in chapter 2 is that Satan plays, pays Job a second visit. And Job's situation, frankly, goes from bad to worse. He is now infected with a skin disease that is akin to leprosy. And because of the fear of contagion, Job is quarantined outside the city limits in the ash heap in, frankly, what was the city dump, where the outcasts gather together. Now, I don't have to tell you, this is implicit in the text, that bad news travels fast. It is much faster than good news. You see this in the media. You see this in the newspaper. And in Job's case, all the news is bad. Now, when we read this text, I would hope that at least his wife would be some sense of encouragement to him, but apparently Mrs. Job counsels him to curse God and die. Now, I'd like to say a word on Mrs. Job's behalf. If you've ever dealt with suffering, if you've ever seen the pain, convalescence of a loved one who is terminal, you can understand that there are moments where you would say, Lord, have mercy, and if this is the time. But in chapter 2, verse 11, there's suddenly this ray of hope. I love this. Apparently, Job was a part of a men's small group. Apparently. We know this because you got the names right, Merrill. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar have heard. They've gotten wind of their friend's plight, and they've come together to console him, to comfort him. Now, it's interesting that it would not have been unusual in the 6th century B.C. in which this was written for there to be a way to solemnize a friendship, a small group, that if there were an accountability of faithfulness in a small group, they would actually have a ceremony where they would make that solemn, they'd make a solemn promise to God to be faithful to each other. And apparently this had happened with these four men. When they see him, when they get to the bend in the road and they see Job, they don't recognize him at first because apparently the pain, the suffering he's been through has changed his demeanor, his appearance. And when at last they realize that that's really him, what do they do? They raise their voices, they cry out loud, they, they tear their garments, and they throw dust in the air upon their heads. What does that mean? These are customary signs of grief and anguish. But it's what they do next in verse 13 where we stopped that speaks to my heart. And they sat with Job on the ground for seven days and seven nights, and nobody said a word because they saw that his suffering was so great. Mm. Do you know that the most articulate language that you can ever speak in the face of suffering is body language? It's a sympathetic tear. It's a head that's bowed. It's a hand that's held. It's an arm around a shoulder. It's a neck 
that it's hugged. When somebody you know is going through a storm, your silent presence is more articulate than a thousand empty words. In fact, I don't have to tell you, if you've ever been through a difficult moment, you know that the people you can sit with in silence without it being awkward, those are pretty close, close friends. I was in a Bible study last Wednesday morning with a group of men, and we were talking about the need that we have in our lives and in our worship life for white space. I, I mean, not filling every second with motion and verbiage. A after the Bible study, I've been thinking about all this all week. I've been wondering what it might be like for a preacher during Lent, during 40 days, to give up talking. Now, several of you at the earlier services have said that you think the idea has merit, but only on Sundays. But can you imagine, all kidding aside, for just a day, what it would be like if you fasted from words. Think of the things you might discover. Think of the things you might see that you might hear. I remember in Lawrenceville where we were before we, were, we moved to Brentwood, I had an administrative assistant who every Lent would give up criticism. It was about this time that I began taking off the week after Easter. You can imagine why. <laughs> because after 40 days of refraining from that, I can tell you the week after Easter, there was a lot to talk about. Emily Dickinson said, saying nothing sometimes says the most. I'm talking about silence. Paul Overstreet, songwriter, wrote a song. Alison Krauss performed it. You say it best when you say nothing at all. What would it be like? And they sat in silence for seven days and seven nights. By the way, whenever you see that phrase, seven days and seven nights, it corresponds with the period of mourning for a Jewish family. You see it first in Genesis 50, verse 10, at the death of Jacob. It's called the Shiva. It means sitting for seven, being completely nonverbal and just being present. What would it be like? And then in Job chapter 3, if you read ahead, Job breaks the silence. His pain, his grief becomes so unbearable that it just spews out. I want to give you a taste of his pain. This is from a modern paraphrase, and I warn you, it's rather graphic. This is Job 3. This is his pain. Listen to this. Oh, God, obliterate the day I was born. Blank out the night that I was conceived. Let it be a black hole in space. May God above forget it ever happened. Erase it from the books. May the day of my birth be buried in deep darkness, shrouded by the fog, swallowed by the night, and the night of my conception, the devil take it. Rip the date off the calendar. Delete it from the almanac. Why, why didn't I die at birth? 
Why were there arms to rock me and knees to hold me and breasts to nurture me? Why wasn't I stillborn and buried with the infants who never saw the light? At least I would be at rest. But here I sit and gnaw on my grief. My groans pour out like water. My worst fears have happened. My nightmare has come to life. Silence and peace have abandoned me and anguish camps in my heart. That's pure pain. What's, what's he doing? He's lamenting. The Bible is full of lamentation. It's raw emotion. If only the friends could have sat in Shiva for a little longer, but they couldn't. Someone had to say a word on behalf of God, and they don't seem to understand that this righteous man's pain, his lament is not blasphemy. It's a prayer. It's a lament. But Eliphaz can't not speak. He has to try to fix it, to fix the unfixable. He tries to explain it. And this is what he says. Listen to this. He's very subtle. Job, if one could venture a word with you, would you be offended? But who can keep from speaking? Who being innocent has ever perished? Where have the upright been destroyed? As far as I know, those who plow evil and sow trouble harvest the same, he says. What's he doing? He's blaming the victim. <laughs> He's contributing to Job's pain. What he's saying is, Job, if you were really faithful, you wouldn't be in this mess. If you were really righteous, you wouldn't be in this fix. What is he doing? He's repeating the conventional theology of his day. There's a name for it. It's called double retribution. If you're faithful, you'll always be healthy, wealthy, and wise. If you're unfaithful, you'll be in a world of hurt. In other words, you reap what you sow, Job. And the next 25 chapters are filled with similar cliches and platitudes offered by well-intentioned friends. And at this point, the comfort ends. <laughs> and so does the friendship. We all do it. We all do it. Some of the things we say in the context of grief are astonishingly unhelpful. Well, I guess his number came up. Not very comforting. Well, God must have needed another angel. That's helpful. You can have other children. Still got your memories. Well, we needed some renovation anyway. He's better off now. She wouldn't want you to be sad. What, what, why do we say those things sometimes because we don't know what to say. And then we're reminded in Job that our responsibility is not to explain suffering. It's to share suffering. It's to close our mouths and open our arms. Be present. You can't fix it. You can't explain it. But you can be present. 
I remember the disciples in John chapter 9. There's an amazing story there. I love this story. As Jesus and friends walked along, they saw a man who, listen to this, was blind from birth. In other words, he was born with this defect. He was born without sight. And so the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned that this man was born blind? So you see in the question, it reflects the theology of the day, which said, if a baby is born with a defect, it was either because of grandfather's sins or great-grandfather's sins, family sins, or it was because of the child's own sin. There was actually a concept, a theological concept in the first century that said it was possible for the fetus within the womb to sin. It's an effort. They're trying to explain the inexplicable. And they asked Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus, watch what he says. No, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind that the work of God might be revealed through him. Now watch this. Jesus doesn't answer the question in terms of causality, but in terms of effect. He doesn't explain it. He absorbs the suffering. He takes it on himself. And his presence is healing. Some of you know Carrie Pogue. I don't think Carrie is here today, is she? She's probably with her family in East Nashville. Carrie and Mark have a son and daughter-in-law who live across the street from East End United Methodist Church that was devastated by the storm. It's interesting. The build, I should say it like this. The building is damaged, but I tell you, East End Church has never been stronger. I'm talking about the people. Carrie and Mark's daughter-in-law, her name is Annie, was filmed on Channel 2 talking about the storm. You could see the church. It's unbelievable. Here's a picture of Amanda Diamond in front of the church. Amanda is one of the co-pastors there. She has an amazing perspective at this point. It was wonderful to talk with her. I, I can see Carrie's family's house. It, it's across the street. The windows were kind of blown out. They're boarded up now. And they interviewed Annie, Carrie's daughter-in-law, and she said this. She said, I think the reason that our house and family survived was because of that church. It's 113 years old, and somehow the church absorbed, bore the weight of the wind, and it moved over us. Judy Hoffman, who is one of the co-pastors, heard what she said, and Pastor Hoffman said, that's what the church is here for. To bear the brunt of the weight of the whirlwind so that others might be saved. One last word. Sean Stewart, Taylor's here today with us. Sean Stewart is a friend. He has terminal cancer. He and his wife, Lisa, have a wonderful family. Uh, they're part of this congregation. Both Lisa and Sean are therapists. They specialize in families with children who have autism, and Sean has terminal cancer. 
After our Ash Wednesday service about 10 days ago, uh, Jeff Wilson, one of our associates, went up to Williamson County Hospital and baptized Sean. Family was there. It was a celebration. You can see the smiles. And Sean made his confession of faith right there in a sick bed. Sean did not hear the response of the congregation that Paul heard today, but I want him to. I don't know that we've done this before, but, but I asked Allison if we were to do that as a congregation, could she record that on her cell phone and send it to Sean and Lisa after worship? She knows something about technology. She's of age. And so here's what I want us to do. As an act of love and shared presence with Sean, Lisa, Taylor, I want us to stand. And I'm going to begin the liturgy, and then I'm going to ask you to respond to what's on the screen so that Sean will know that he's loved and welcome in this community. And when we get to the name, Sean Stewart, say it a little louder, all right? Don't be timid. Friends in the household of faith, I commend to your love and care this day. Sean Stewart, do all in your power to increase his faith, confirm his hope, and perfect him in love. And if you will do that, join me in this promise. We give thanks for all that God has already given you, and we welcome you, Sean Stewart, in Christian love. As friends together with you in the body of Christ and in this congregation, called Brentwood United Methodist Church. We renew our covenant faithfully to participate in the ministries of the church by our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We love you, Sean, and give thanks to God for you. You get it? Let me see them. Did you get it? You get what we just did? We solemnized this fellowship before God so that God will enable us not only to be loyal to Sean and his family, but to each other. I wonder if we gave a little white space this morning, if we gave God a little white space, I wonder if he would bring a name or a face to your mind. And if he did, that we might pray to be the hands of God for that person. We're going to try it. I'm going to ask you now to share a moment in silence, and perhaps God will give a name and a face. Let's pray.
In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.